Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, and welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you for lending me your ear, the only non-renewable resource that you possess, your time. I promise I don't take that for granted. And I know that you'll leave today's episode for the better for your investment. Today's entrepreneurs are both longtime solo warriors who have deep industry credibility to show for it. Cedric Breu and I have known each other for about a decade now, and I've truly enjoyed watching his career unfold and flourish. He has been and remains one of the most respected and published independent thought leaders on the subject of solar asset management for much of the time that I've known him. So you can imagine my surprise when I found out in late 2018 that he had joined a startup. Today, you'll get to hear that inception story, and you'll also be treated to the storytelling prowess of a National Retail Hall of Fame marketer in Cedric's sidekick and fellow Omnidian executive, Mr. Brad Davis. Brad's accolades are frankly too many to list here, so be sure to check his LinkedIn profile, which is of course always linked in the show notes. Omnidian is up to something truly unique in the world of asset management, and they've been on quite the growth trajectory, announcing recently some innovation around the products that set them apart from the crowd in distinct ways. I hope that you're ready to learn about product innovation and startup success because today's episode packs a punch. If you do love this episode, then you should check out, or at least consider, more than 250 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, check out our tribe newsletter so that you don't miss out on all the ways we're working to bring extra value to your ears and eyeballs. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, I am super excited about today's interview. It's essentially a twofer, and it's one that I've been trying to get on tape for a long time. We're going to take a trip down memory lane with one of the guys that I've known longest in the industry, a guy named Cedric Brejo. If you're unfamiliar with Cedric, Cedric is an industry pioneer. He's definitely considered an authority on the topic of solar asset management and O&M. Before it was really even a topic that people knew how to wrap their heads around, Cedric and I were digging into O&M and he was teaching me the ins and outs of the Sun Edison monitoring solution, which he and his team built back in, uh, you know, in the aughts uh, when I was still selling commercial solar arrays. It's been really a pleasure to see how his career has progressed since helping build that first asset management solution for Sun Edison, going on to run a business called Soli Chamba. You guys have probably recognized that because Soli Chamba was responsible for the first GTM O&M white paper and and research project that came on that went on to essentially create Cedric as the star of asset management that he is today, having known him for a long time and been running buddies and just enjoyed watching how his career has progressed 
something very recent in uh, the grand scheme of things sort of jarred me and I had to reach out to Cedric and ask him a question about it. So we're going to talk about that today. But first, I just wanted to welcome Cedric to the show. Nico, um, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, I've been following also what you what you've done uh, for the solar industry. It's 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 a pleasure to be on Suncast and to uh, go down memory lane with you. Indeed, indeed. I was telling my wife the other day. She said, "Who's this Cedric guy?" And I said, "Oh, do you remember when we were in Monterey? I was running the half marathon, and one of my like random solar buddies ran up alongside me." She's like, "Yeah." I'm like, yeah. And then he traveled through Latin America with his wife. She's like, yeah. I'm like, that guy. <laughs> so there are these crazy anchors that we have in our in our life stories, right? Um, where you work alongside each other in the solar industry. It's such a small family that we get a chance to experience this more than once, many of us. But you work alongside folks and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, we all kind of got into this for the same reason. And here I see in the Bay Area, this happens more often than not this guy doing something that I also enjoy that has nothing to do with solar. And you find, you find that our lives parallel each other inside and outside of work uh, quite often. And, and you were truly one of the few early, one of the early folks in my career where that happened. And it was this moment that I realized like, oh, I'm actually a part of this funny tribe, like this family of people who enjoy life outdoors and who believe in profiting and also doing well for humanity and the, and the world. And, and then you went and traipsed around Latin America, which frankly was my life's goal. <laughs> so we've been following each other for a while. And as I mentioned in the outset, it did take me by surprise when I saw that you had taken a formal position inside of this company that I'd only heard sort of rumors about called Omnidian. For those who aren't familiar, Omnidian is a is an asset management company. I won't try to define it because we have uh, smarter folks on the call than I to do that. But just the fireworks started getting off my head. First of all, I trust um, that you are one of the most principled, um, well-reasoned uh, leaders in our industry, and you loved uh, the life of uh, being able to sort of own your own path. So my first thought was, ha what in the world would make uh, Cedric want to jump back into the corporate life? And then the second was, maybe not even what, but who could have compelled him with such a compelling argument. And to that end, when, I, when, when we did, it, in fact, get a chance to chat, you said to me, you really should meet the Omnidian team. And I think you should start with this guy, Brad. So in a not so usual Suncast episode, we also have a co-founder of Omnidian on, on the line today, Brad Davis. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Brad, but first let's welcome Brad to the show as well. Thank you, Nico. And I just want to tell you, I'm a big fan of Cedric's too. So this may be, this may be the fan club edition today. I love it's it. A, I love it. Circular fan club. We're all fans of each other. <laughs> Very cool. So for those unfamiliar with Brad, uh, we'll dig into a bit of his backstory. But frankly, I think we're going to keep uh, some of the, the spotlight on Cedric today. Brad has his own remarkable story as a co-founder and a leader within the Omnidian team, he draws from decades of experience in financial services, retail, and renewable energy, names that you'd recognize, Target Corporation, JP Morgan, and SunPower. It would take an entire other separate interview to really go into uh, how he found himself in those roles. But I do hope that we can draw on the myriad remarkable stories uh, because I've found Brad to be one of the best storytellers I've come across in a long time. So Brad, I look forward to better understanding. I'm sure Cedric's going to kick over to you occasionally to help us unpack the story of kind of what I just laid out, which is how and why a career for Cedric that 
certainly placed him as a, a market leader would draw him back into the company. So with that, let me jump into our first topic with you, Cedric. Can you help me understand, you know, you and I met, you and I met back 2009 timeframe while you were still at, right. Sun, at Sun Edison. So Cedric, I remember that you were one of a team of folks that got acquired by Sun Edison, namely for the asset management platform. And this was a time for context, those who are familiar with back in the early mid 2000s, Fat Spaniel may have been really the only viable. There were a handful of other competitors, but there weren't like the rampant mass market monitoring products and data gathering and analysis products. So Sun, Sun Edison, as, as uh, they were prone to do, found a team and pulled them inside and made the product really become something that was an industry standard. But can you help me get to that point? I'm really curious to understand how you first became aware of renewable energy, how you got involved in the business and decided this is where you're going to spend the next uh, you know, large portion of your life. Well, it, it's true. It's, it's, it was an interesting convoluted story because I was, I was happy being a product manager in the um, identity and authentication space, uh, working with, uh, with NSA type security solutions. And then one day I, my friends took me to see a, a, to watch a movie and that movie was an inconvenient truth. And I walked out of the movie theater thinking, this is, this is life-changing. Mm. I can't just keep doing what I'm doing. And so it triggered a thought process of, well, how do I do something? How do I put my life in alignment with the new realization that there's something going on called climate change? And I don't want to continue to do um, business as usual. And so the question was, how do I transition from software security authentication into something tied to the environment and has a, that has an impact on climate change? So it took me actually a good six to nine months where I identified different fields, industries. I did research. I remember I had a spreadsheet where I was listing all the companies in the solar and environmental space that I could possibly contact in Silicon Valley. It was a long list. Most of them are gone by now, um, like long gone. <laughs> and I, I thought that solar was a good space to be in. Um, so I did a um, uh, actually, a tr an online course with the University of New South Wales that had a course on photovoltaics because mm -hmm. I thought it would be good to get some kind of knowledge on what it was about. But of course, that was not enough. I was applying for jobs and there people were looking at me like, what? You have one experience in solar? Zero. Get out of here. I got a lot of no's and um, I chose to uh, leverage my my angle, which was software, because although it was security software, I had 10 years of experience building software, doing product management. And so I ended up landing a job with this tiny little company called Enflex at the time, uh, which was doing for monitoring um, commercial facilities and solar systems. And I joined literally the day before they got acquired by Sun Edison. Wow. Which was just incredibly serendipitous because I had applied for a job at St. Edison and they told me, well, if you want to move to Maryland, that's okay. Uh, but I guess I was not that dedicated to solar that I was willing to move from the Bay Area to, to Maryland. And so full circle, company got acquired and I found myself doing product management at St. Edison. 
That is remarkable. I didn't know that piece of the story that it was the day before Inflex got acquired. Yeah, they couldn't tell me about it. They were like, something's going on. <laughs> You're going to like it. Mm. And of course, they scheduled the day after because if they had hired me before, then I would have had some stock options and blah, blah, blah. So of course, <laughs> it was all scheduled so that it happened after. But I did benefit from it because um, after I joined, I was able to get into a company that was a lot more aligned and doing a lot bigger things than this mm. small company was, was doing. So at the time, for those who may be, maybe think about Sun Edison as this behemoth company that was, you know, that was forming global REIT-like structures and building large utility scale projects, what was Sun Edison's main focus at that time? And, I'm, and if I'm not mistaken, this is also around the time they bought Ready Solar, right? It was about those times. At the time, Sun Edison was super focused on commercial. Uh, mm-hmm. So they were really growing the, the power agreement uh, for commercial clients. And they were working with a lot of uh, retail chains to install a bunch of solar uh, on, on a PPA model. Yeah. Um, and they were very successful at it. Um, the motto was simplifying solar at the time, which, mm-hmm. which they did in a lot of ways. The company evolved into something bigger, different over the years. Yeah. Uh, to the point that led me to think that it was time to go. But yeah, later. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll get into that in, at some point. I remember it was the first time that I learned uh, about the idea of a channel partner because we at, at DRI at the time became a channel partner. So I got to know you because we were not only integrating product that you were managing, but also trying to um, you know sell it into projects that we were working on as a third party to Sun Edison. So that whole idea of being a channel partner downstream as an installer, I hadn't really thought about other than uh, when I ran my own solar company, I was hiring local electricians as subcontractors. They were sort of my channel partner, but um, they were really just um, like the labor for the job. And I didn't consider them. They weren't helping me sell. Uh, They weren't a pull through mechanism for my product. Um, And so Sun Edison was the first, my first exposure of being a piece in a chain that was a pull through of a product to the consumer via a sales team that did, wasn't owned by Sun Edison. Uh, and I thought that was remarkable. What did you as the product manager for Inflex and what, you know, the product that became the Sun Edison asset management platform, what did you see uh, within the construct? And this is potentially a really big question. I'm trying to figure out how to make it smaller for you, Cedric, because I consider you the domain authority on asset management now. So, but could you maybe explain like the state of the union for asset management circa 2009, uh, when you really jumped into this full force, how you've seen that evolve to today. And, and I, I'd love to hear from you kind of what you saw as the opportunities then. And then we can talk a little bit about the opportunities present day. Yeah. Well, at the time, we didn't call it asset management. There was no name for it. Yeah. Um, it was monitoring. <laughs> there, was, there was definitely the monitoring piece. Um, and there, there was a struggle there and there was the O&M which was in its, in its infancy and then there was an additional layer of hey how do we report that to the investors and, and this later became called asset management mm. uh, but the, the core the, the first thing we tackled was the monitoring and you mentioned earlier uh, Fat Spaniel true they, they were a startup they were the only game in time in town when it came to uh, monitoring but they really didn't understand the the, the the power purchase agreement model. And they didn't understand the fact that monitoring data was not just technical data. It was also billing data. Yeah. And so they had these issues where you would look at your data on a, on a given day, and then you would look again two days after, and then the data for earlier days had changed. 
And they would say, well, well, that's okay. We just made it better. And we had to explain to them, I just build someone based on the data you gave me. And now you're telling me that it was not good enough and you're replacing it. So there was a fundamental disconnect because Sun Edison was inventing the PPA in solar. And the industry was still catching up on the fact that there's an entire chain of data that needs to reflect the new reality that it, your monitoring is not just to say, hey, is it working or is it not working? It's also, it's contractual billing revenue data. And so that was the, the big challenge that we had at the time uh, on, on the data piece. Uh, now, of course, we've come a long way and these are problems that are, that are well solved. But at the time, it was definitely an issue. Yeah. Was it, was it Energy Recommerce, the other guys in the Bay Area that eventually yep. got bought? Energy Recommerce was also on that on that uh, train. Uh, yeah, and, uh, I remember that too. Solar Power Partners. There were, you know, there were really a handful. I mean, and some of them were startups. Some of them were. Um, I mean, remember the guys running around at SPI with the Shade Happens T-shirts that were also in the monitoring space, and they were they were the kind of an early uh, intro, uh, introductory product that National Semiconductor bought. Like this was a really volatile time in the industry, uh, which is what for me made it remarkable for Inflex to have been acquired by Sun Edison, it gave credibility at a big, um, at a, at a really inflect, uh, a critical inflection moment in, the, in our careers and in the trajectory in particular of commercial solar folks like Fat Spaniel, like that for me was when the wheat started to separate from the shaft, so to speak, like the people who get that monitoring and asset management is a sales tool and the people who believe that it is a consumer product. And yeah. I think that was the big segmentation. You, you, you hit it on the head. Fat Spaniel had started as a technology company, and what they were doing was showing cool widgets to homeowners about what their solar was doing. Mm-hmm. And they didn't realize that serving the needs of a fleet operator like a Sun Edison was something completely different. So around that time, uh, I think we'll skip for the sake of I, I, folks can just come up to you at SPI and ask the conversation around why and how you chose to leave Sun Edison. Let's skip that for a moment. You, like many of us, decided uh, there's something more I want uh, out of this and out of life. Help me understand the decision framework with you and maybe the conversation with your wife around leaving Sun Edison and what eventually led to the contract that you have with GTM that I mentioned earlier. Leaving Sun Edison was easy. We'll get back to that another time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I didn't necessarily know what was going to happen next. Uh, Mm -hmm. What I knew is that I wanted to just take a break. And so we could maybe, maybe today, maybe another day, talk about, you know, spending a year uh, traveling across Latin America. Uh, But I knew that I wanted to be uh, freelancing and I knew I wanted to do my own thing in the solar industry. Mm. Um, And so in the beginning, it took the shape of consulting. And that I had a good uh, roster of contacts and people, uh, many of them ex and Edison that would call me and say, Hey, Cedric, I have a problem. Usually it was with monitoring. Yeah. Um, and then I need help. Can you help me out? Yeah. I, would, I would act on a consulting basis. But the, the, the GTM relationship happened in a different way. It's because as we were traveling in, in Latin America, I think I was in, in Ecuador at the time and I realized, you know what, when I was running the, the product division at Sun Edison for, these, for this monitoring um, product, uh, there's just no market intelligence. You don't know who the players are. You don't know how good they are. You yeah. don't know what their market share is. As a product manager, I would have loved to buy this information. And so what I did is um, I went to GTM, and at the time, Shale Khan was, was running, uh, uh, running the show. Awesome, awesome guy. Yeah. And he told me, well, that's a good idea. Why don't you write it? And if I like it, I'll publish it. 
which was an interesting value proposition <laughs> because I had to put the work first. Yeah. And um, I thought, I can do this. Yeah. Um, I, in my previous uh, career in, in software, I had read a bunch of reports by Gartner and Burton Group and other specialized outlets. And I was like, I, I can do this. I'm, I'm going to do it. And so I started um, putting the framework together and contacting um, monitoring companies. Most of them said, who, who are you? Um, why would I give you my data? But I actually had a, a fantastic incident uh, that, that led to the report being successful. It's one of those things where at the time you think, oh my God, I made a horrible mistake. It's, everything's going to crash and burn. And in the end, it saved me. That mistake was um, instead of blind copying a bunch of folks, I actually copied them. I CC'd them. And so there's about 10 competitors that received the same message from me, copying each other, asking them for participation in the report and please send me your market share and all of that. Oh, wow. I can see where <laughs> Which this I was going. horrified about. Mm. Um, and then I got a response from one of the folks, I will not name names, one of the folks who said, why would I share my data with you? Mm-hmm. I never said I would. Of, and of course, he had said he would. But then one copy right. with everybody else, he said he wouldn't. And he and responded. Another, wait, did he respond with everyone else and say, why would I do this? Yes, with everyone else. Uh, <laughs> so there was this conversation happening with everyone now. Conversational, exactly, among friendly <laughs> competitors. And then another company said, why don't you want to share your numbers? Are you scared? I'll share mine. And thus it started. That is amazing. What a fortuitous, serendipitous moment, right? Um, Yeah. And and a few months and a lot of work later, I had my first report. uh, And then um, fortunately, Shale liked it and published it. And uh, that was the beginning. I think 10 seconds even on the reality of this. Like I mentioned that you're an entrepreneur. We could say, oh, I wrote an article and Shale published it. It was more than an article. That was like your real first taste as an entrepreneur of negotiating a contract. And at the time, GTM wasn't with McKinsey, but they were definitely still the big dog in town. I don't know what your NDA allows you to talk about, but I would love it if you could unpack for a minute. Just was that contract momentous for you in terms of establishing the direction or was it simply just another milestone? And did you like, did it fund your travels or how did that work out for you? That contract was, I would say an anchor. The first one did okay. And the second one did a lot better. What it provided me with is, is two things. One, um, it, it gave me a floor of uh, a certain level of income that I knew mm-hmm. would come from these reports. Not enough to sustain myself or my family, but yeah. something, something relatively predictable. Um, but more importantly, what it gave me is something that I understood later um, as um, a thunderstrike. And it's the idea, it's from a book uh, called Play Bigger. And the idea is that you don't want to do better than others. You want to be different. You want to be the only one doing what you do. And having this relationship with GTM and having these reports being published and being able to write articles in GTM talking about some of the report findings, it gave me the ability to just rise above above the noise and just make the statement, hello, my name is Cedric. I know about monitoring. I know about asset management. If you have a question, call me. And so from that perspective, the research was not necessarily the, the money-making business for me, but it, it gave me the visibility that, that, um, that got me the consulting contracts that were more sustainable. Which eventually, and it took, as you said, two, three more years. I think you did this for seven or eight years, right? With Wood McKenzie? Seven years, that's right. Seven years. Became a calling card. 
you know, we had John Shermanis on the show from Kindle Investment. One of the things that is one of those nuggets of wisdom just stuck in my head uh, as he was transitioning into renewables. One of his mentors told him, you know, you can change your industry or you can change your core competence, but you can't change both at the same time. You know, as an example, he was in the finance industry. And so he moved into renewables. And instead of going to renewables as an operations manager or a salesperson, et cetera, he moved into the finance track of renewables. And it just goes back to this idea that when you are experiencing transition, and let's face it, like everyone right now uh, is experiencing some level of trauma, tumult, like we're finally going uh, away from what has been the largest bull market in history. And f- people are are, are reeling many who maybe by the time this is published have lost their jobs uh, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their careers. You know, Cedric is a great example. Over the course of a relatively short amount of time in the industry, you became a subject matter expert. I know from personal experience, it wasn't something that you felt like was a real glaring, obvious thing that you were the industry domain authority on this topic. Uh, but you took it and you ran with it. I love that idea of Thunderstrike. What was the book that you mentioned again? The book is called Play Bigger. I love what you said about you, you can't change both your industry mm-hmm. and your, your core competency uh, because that's, that's what I faced and that's, that's how I transitioned my, in my career because I, I kept the software piece and moved from you know, security software to solar software. And that that's was right. possible because I kept, I kept in software. And then when I was at Sun Edison, I learned a lot about solar, which allowed me to then grow into different areas within solar. That's right. And then from monitoring I moved into O&M reports and from O&M reports, I moved into asset management, which was much later because it had to wait until there was such a thing as asset management that was recognized as even a topic that people wouldn't be interested in. You had to wait until people started repeating the words that you'd been using for a decade. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. And uh, and to be honest, even at the end of um, of, of my run of doing these reports, the asset management piece was also the, the one that was the that took, that had the least market traction of all three monitoring or yeah. and asset management because I guess it's still relatively new. Hmm. And people are still more interested in monitoring and OM than they are in asset management, true asset management. Because now you can use asset management to describe anything. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a much broader topic. In the hell there's the asset management conference, right? Which covers the entire gamut. Well, I mentioned Earlier that we have the duopoly of uh, two uh, industry greats, in my opinion, joining me here today. And I want to take a moment and back out, uh, zoom the lens back to really explore what's happening at a macro level within the context of the renewables market as a retail product with financial instruments. And I think few people have worked so deeply on each topic as our other guest today, Brad Davis. And Brad, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with your career, would you help explain as, uh, as only you can do, I've heard you say this before, kind of the summary of what you consider that you've worked on as sort of your life's work or your career, uh, which has touched on retail, finance, and renewables? Yeah, yeah. I started my career actually as an attorney and decided really quickly I didn't want to do that. And a friend of mine was in retail at the time and he called me and he said, look, there's this uh, company that I think someday is going to be really significant and their name is Target and you should come interview with them. And I did. And I spent uh, 14 years of my career there and became director of marketing. And then 
was recruited out of there to uh, uh, Washington Mutual, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, where I was chief marketing officer, and we grew that thing uh, uh, nationally. And then I became chairman of the board of the Retail uh, Marketing Association and sort of followed Cedric's path in a way because I took time off while I was in that job and I was paid to travel all over the globe and speak in Madrid and South Africa and Australia and China. And it gave me a chance to really speak, to travel at the same time. So it was a a great break for me. But what we were doing is we were going around the globe and we were talking to great, great companies, American Express and uh, Cathay Pacific Airways and an energy company in Spain called Iberdrola. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was invited to Madrid to speak with them to talk about how to take a great company and turn it into a powerhouse brand. Mm. And that was something I was really passionate about. And that's what threaded together my whole career is that I really was interested in communications and I was particularly interested in not looking at communications from a perspective that's super self-centered. What are our products and what are our services and why should you like them? Because I knew from the beginning that was never going to work, but rather to think about communication in terms of like translating it down to how how does this become a human need? How is what we're doing going to impact people's lives? And how do we explain what we're doing in a way that mere mortals can understand? And so um, after I had done this global tour, I got recruited to a company called SunPower. So I was recruited into renewable energy because SunPower at the time launching in uh, Europe and Australia, and I was helping to do that. I subsequently went back into financial services. That's another conversation. It was a, I tend to find these uh, transitions in my career at these giant inflection points of industry. And it was the financial crisis that pulled me back into financial services. But I met Cedric because a group of friends of mine that uh, had been executives at uh, SunPower had founded this company. They were founding this company that they had at the time called Pegu. And I remember the CEO called me and said, what do you think of the name of the new company? And I was like, this is never going to work. And we all got together and it became Omnidian. Um, There's a backstory to that as well. But what we realized is that the market, the industry was going undergoing a tectonic change at the time. Two things were sort of happening. One is that people were moving from leases to cash and loan purchases of a product. And so what they were doing is they were taking on risk, Mm -hmm. right? You can appreciate that. And then at the same time, we suspected that uh, uh, Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, that Mm -hmm. the market was crossing the chasm. And we were going from early adopters to the early mass market. And that this was, we were going to be speaking as an industry to people who were risk averse, So what was happening is the market was taking on more risk with the transition out of leases. The market was shifting to the mass market to a risk averse market. And that's when I started to look around for an industry expert who could help me with this idea we had about risk elimination Mm. and make it something that was tangible. And that's when someone said to me, you have got to meet this guy whose name is Cedric Breo. Now, I read up on Cedric a bit and I must confess that while I had been uh, doing a lot of things in a lot of industries around the globe for a long, long time, I was super nervous going to lunch with him <laughs> because we knew that Cedric had the experience and the skill and ability. And I thought, oh man, I really hope when I sit down, I really like this guy and that it's fun to work with him. And it was like lightning in a bottle. I started talking to Cedric about what we were doing and Cedric started talking about his insight into the industry. And we realized that we shared this intersection of how people view consumer behavior. 
And it led to this white paper. We developed that white paper and published it. And that was the beginning of our history together. And it's been an awesome one ever since. And as I recall, the the core driver there was going back to this idea that you had a thesis about what was happening in the marketplace and you really needed data. Is that accurate? hundred percent. Yes. And, and, so, and, and so Cedric, help me understand, unpack how you went about as a service provider, helping your new client Omnidian gather this data and what that informed about what you saw as a new opportunity in the industry that eventually transformed your own career. I remember the meeting with with Brad, of course, and with another great guy called Yosef Tucker. That's that's another. He's a legend in the industry, and uh, the three of us were were at the table talking about this stuff. And I was just wondering if there was a way that I could actually prove that really solar is crossing the chasm. Nobody mm-hmm. had actually quantified it, and so I was able to tie my, the, the consulting project with the, the, all the data that I was gathering and working working on with GTM and actually started plotting the different states in the U.S. and, and uh, the adoption of residential solar in each of these states and where they were on that chart of uh, customer adoption and uh, realized that pretty much California and Hawaii were, uh, California was crossing or had just crossed and then Hawaii had crossed already and then everybody else was getting ready to cross. And so it was kind of amazing to see that what Brad and the Omnidian team's instinct was telling them that, we, that solar was crossing the it was actually backed by data. And I put together the chart. I was pretty happy about it and then showed it to Brad. And I think my ear almost <laughs> got killed when I heard his response over the phone. Yeah. It was really a moment where, uh, where data connected with, with uh, qualitative market insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, what clicked for me is that it was the first time I was writing a marketing paper for a client. And I believed every single word that I wrote in it. That got me to pause because to me, that was not a usual experience with marketing. Usually marketing was trying to sell something, to embellish it, to, there was a disconnect between the reality and the marketing words, Mm -hmm. but not there, not with the media, not with this paper we worked on together. And so it it was a, a pivotal moment for me. Brad, I'd like to invite, I think that you have a really elegant way of explaining this, one that I hadn't heard before. What, in your opinion, the founding team at Anidian was trying to unlock. You pointed in a previous conversation to, you know, the number of times that you and your profession have seen a crowded marketplace that's price focused rather than performance focused. Those of us who've kind of existed in solar for a long time can certainly identify with that. Many may not be so familiar with the crossing the chasm theory of real value. Can you just unpack that for me a bit and help us understand the, the idea of time and emotion? I've seen it happen in financial services. I've seen it happen in traditional retail. When you think about traditional retail, who doesn't know, you know, five t-shirts for $10, right? So what we're doing is we're selling on price. Mm -hmm. What I quickly realized, particularly like talking to all these companies all around the globe on that tour about how do you create real value? Mm -hmm. What we concluded is that real value really doesn't have anything to do with price, right? The Real value is created when you're out on the end of the spectrum, which has to do with time and emotion, right? So if you can save people's time, if you can prohibit negative emotion 
from being something that impacts them. If you can turn whatever experience they're having into a positive experience, that's when you create real value. And when you think about it, people will pay a price premium for real value, right? But the value has got to be directed at them, not at what they're selling. You have to be relieving pain the market is experiencing. And Cedric and I both believe that from the bottom of our heart, that what we had to do was like not look at what we were trying to sell, not looking at the solutions we were creating, but to communicate that to the world relative to the pain that we were solving in the market. And what we saw is that the market was undergoing a super dynamic shift because when you think about it, this was a, a crazy inflection point. You had this experience where we were going out and we were selling solar, right? And we were selling it to early adopters who were willing to take risk. And then all of a sudden the market shifted, but the people that were sitting across the dining room table for, from you looked the same mm-hmm. as the people who were sitting across from you a year ago, mm-hmm. but they were really different mentally. And Cedric saw that and we saw that and we saw it as a real opportunity to come to the market with a solution where we could de-risk the market. Mm-hmm. We could say, can we sell solar without fear? Mm-hmm. Can we enable the contractors and uh, installers in the sector to bring solar without fear to the market if we knew, we knew it would be a real game changer if we could? Can I ask you to unpack what that looks like, selling solar with fear? selling solar with fears like this. Oh, uh, there are no moving parts and it's warranted for 20 years. You'll be good. Write the check and go uh, Mm -hmm. onto your happy future. And guess what? If you ever discover you have a problem, call us. And if we're not busy out selling, we'll come back and service it. Yeah. Uh, Solar without fear is, oh, don't worry. We're going to give you this monitoring system now. When you pull the monitoring system out and you look at it, you'll be able to tell it's binary. Are you generating energy or are you not? But you're not going to know whether it's appropriate generating enough energy relative to the weather conditions, right? There were all these factors where people were basically operating a power plant on their roof, but they had no uh, skill and experience in how to do it, when to know if there was a problem, how to solve the problem if you had a problem. Mm. They had no guarantee that what they were promised was going to be true at the end of the year. And we were sitting down and we were looking at all those factors and dynamics and saying, look, we can monitor it for you. We can alert you if there's an issue. We have partners. We can dispatch those partners. We can certify after the maintenance experience uh, that your system is operating as it should be. We can cover 100% of the maintenance. We can guarantee your energy. At the end of the year, if you're not getting the energy you promised, we'll write you a check. This was game-changing. And we called that solar without fear. You know, you mentioned earlier that is this idea of de-risking or taking out for sure the financial risk, but in some cases, even the emotional emotional risk, risk of saying yes to, I mean, this is fundamentally at its core a way to accelerate the marketplace. But I also see it as in the crossing the chasm, there's this idea that folks, you reach this sort of friction point and there's a reason why people aren't making decisions and It's A, because there are proliferated many, many options. It's hard to choose between them. Uh, And B, because people aren't sure if now is the right time. The way we've, in my career, have tried to overcome that is saying, oh, well, you know, here's the curve of historical utility rates, which is fallible. And, you know, here's the warranty. And uh, like you said, no moving parts. Help me understand how, from an installer's perspective, this idea of, Competing on something other than price, which in this case, as you position as time and emotion, creates peace of mind for the homeowner. 
Well, um, there are a couple things. A lot of us, uh, and you know, we, I think we've all been there at some point in our career. We sell to this uh, mythical being that I refer to as Homo economicus. <laughs> Homo economicus is highly rational. Homo economicus, prior to making a purchasing decision, sits down and does a little tea and does here are the pros and here are the cons, discusses the pros and the cons with their spouse and comes to a rational purchasing decision. The problem is none of us are selling to Homo economicus. We're all selling to his home, his dim-witted half-brother, Homo sapiens. And Homo sapiens buys emotionally right? Homo sapiens wants to avoid conflict, avoid fear, avoid the unknown. And so when we go in and we try to sell to homeowners by saying there are no moving parts and uh, we've got you covered and there's a 20-year product warranty and you won't have a problem with the product and you know that's not true, right? What we said is it doesn't make any sense to sit down and counter all those point by point by point by point What it makes sense is to sell emotionally and to sell from a point of truth and just to say to people, solar without fear means you said it and you forget it. We've got your back. Mm. We'll monitor it. We'll let you know how it's performing. At the end of the year, we'll write you a check if there's a problem. In other words, we had to net it all down to you don't have to do anything. You can rest assured that the product will perform as promised, and you can rest assured that we'll be there if it's not. That was the idea we had. I want to see if I can triangulate something here because I'm putting myself back in that coffee shop where two founders were trying in earnest to recruit by way of, uh, we'll call it a a market test, but recruit an, an industry authority, an expert into helping create a value proposition for this business. And one who, as we've unpacked a bit here, you didn't have a small role at SunPower. You'd certainly understand, uh, as our past guest Martin DeBono did as well, kind of the inner workings of the SunPower model of selling on premium value and building a dealer network that can themselves sell the high value of what you own, right? And I mentioned earlier that my introduction to Sun Edison uh, and, and vis-a-vis Sun Edison Cedric was the idea of uh, a channel partnership. You know, the thing that if I'm sitting here listening to this for the first time again comes to mind for me, and I'd love Cedric for your insight on this, is, okay, that sounds great, but you're talking about something that you're twice removed from as a service provider. How does this whole idea of reducing emotional friction translate into a product. Cedric, how did you help the Amidian Amidian team really think about turning the corner on that from a product delivery perspective? Oh, it's simple. We failed and then we tried again (laughs) and then we failed and then we tried again. This is 100% true. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about some of the early iterations of how you tried to bring it to market? One of the biggest learnings is is exactly what you referred to as as being several steps removed from the homeowner. We knew we had a product that homeowners wanted because uh, even before I joined, Brad and his team had done an incredible work of doing market testing. And so there were almost a thousand people that were looking into solar and that were interviewed and then responses were measured. So we knew homeowners wanted it. We hit a wall because what we hadn't solved for is what's in it for the installer. And that's what take, took us a while to figure out. And we, we've now pivoted. And although the homeowner is critical to us and the contract we sign is with the homeowner and we want to please the homeowner. 
first of all, we have to make sure there's value for the installer. And that, that's how the product has shifted because we hit that wall the first time where um, homeowners wanted it, installers didn't. And then we hit a second wall where installers, like the, the, the management team of the installer company wanted it, but the salesperson didn't want to talk about it to the homeowner because they were scared that if they even mentioned the idea that there's, there's a, a performance plan or, or something that protects you against things that may happen, the salespeople were worried that it would, it would just kill the deal because now the homeowner thinks, oh my God, you mean it can break? Or you mean maybe it's not going to generate as much as you told me it would? Right. Of course, in reality, what we're hearing from consumers is the salesperson that actually gets ahead of that issue and talks about it and is transparent, gets an edge over the salesperson, brushes over it and says, hey, don't worry about it. Mm. You're all covered. But still, as a, as a salesperson, uh, you want to avoid anything that might kill your deal. And so the product is designed to be included with every new system that is a cash or loan deal uh, sold by the installer. And how it works is the installer prepays for the first year of service or the first two, three, five, we haven't seen 10 years of service within the deal. And by prepackaging it, um, they add value to the solar system because now it comes with solar without fear. This, seen, this yes. reminds me, Cedric, and surely you'll re- relate with this. I mean, back when I sold Fat Spaniel in 2006, 7, 8, 9, I would go and buy a URL uh, like fosterfarmsolar.com. And I would pay for Fat Spaniel for five years and I would just tack it on and I would sell that as a part of the package. And it helped actually increase my close rate to my competitors. Is that something that you see as a tangible benefit? Yes, we do. And we actually have a story of uh, installers coming to us because customers told them about our product. Wow. So you've actually unlocked something where the customer request this is again i mean it goes back to how many of us have sold against sun power and time and time again they're like oh well i want sun power pounds like well i'm not a sun power dealer oh well then i'm gonna go talk to a sun power dealer but why if i can sell you sanyo or lg or right there are equivalent products which we'll get to in a minute but it occurs to me that this is i mean this is a remarkable turn in product marketing right now in our space, because it's very, very difficult to get a customer to come into the marketplace and ask for a product rather than say, hey, give me what you got, tell me best price. Absolutely. And it was a moment of celebration at Omidian, as you can imagine, when we had a call from an installer that we have never talked to because one of their prospective clients was given a quote from another installer that included an Omnidian plan. And now they were going back to this other installer and telling them, I like you guys, but I want this Omnidian thing. I want, I want the peace of mind. And so we had the dealer, the installer call us and they signed up in record time. They got onboarded and going in, a, in record time and they actually got the deal. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy-to-install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. 
Demand X works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Did you miss out on the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? We had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy throughout the Americas, learning about where the industry's going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing and you can check it out over at suncastsummit.com. It's posted there for a limited time for free. You can also see all of the replays inside of our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild, where all the videos are posted and lots of solar warriors just like you are connecting. Both are linked over at suncastsummit.com. See you on the inside. The market in many respects drove the product, right? Mm -hmm. Because we had gone out and spoken to consumers with qualitative research and so we knew that when they were making a purchasing decision for residential solar, they were interested in professional monitoring. They wanted access to uh, live people who could do real-time diagnostics of their system. They wanted someone to help them manage the uh, maintenance. They wanted a performance guarantee. We knew all that. Mm -hmm. Then we went out and we did quantitative research to then test pricing. And what we tested was a 10-year product that was offered anywhere between one and $2,000. So what happened is that we found when we took it to dealers, that dealers were saying to us, I love the product. I love the receptivity that the market has to the product. You got to give me the product at a price I can just fold in and include with everything I sell. Mm -hmm. And that's when we set about developing this product that the dealer could fold in for $300 and include with everything they sold and that the homeowner at the end of the prepaid period could renew at a price less than a subscription for Netflix. It's $12.99 a month. So a lot of the uh, solar installers that are carrying our product are elite dealers. Those solar installers are paying, prepaying to include it for one year, two years, and one installer is including it for 10 years. They're prepaying for the homeowners 10 years with every package, right? Think about that. And so what's happening is the uh, homeowners then are getting quarterly performance reports from the solar installer and from Omnidian telling them how it's performing. So they're staying top of mind with homeowners. Problems are being solved. The maintenance is covered. The homeowner has a performance guarantee. And at the end of that period, the homeowner can renew for $12.99 a month. Now, the interesting thing about that was the market drove the product. We went out and we talked to homeowners. What did they want? Then we talked to dealers. What did they want? Dealers actually loved the product, but they wanted a product at a price point they could include with everything they sold. And that's how we landed where we landed. One of the reasons this interview happened is because Cedric, you and I were bantering back and forth on LinkedIn because I saw an announcement that you guys had sort of unlocked this, in my view, secret weapon in California that I'd like to invite you to talk about. But it really creates a barrier to entry. And it's one of those barriers to entry that people don't even realize exists until they go, oh, we can follow that. And they realize that, lo and behold, it's not as easy as it looks. Can you explain the whole process of being able to offer this guarantee as a retail product? Not the whole process, obviously, but can you explain why it's difficult? (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is difficult. The level of difficulty is different on a state-by-state basis. Mm -hmm. But the core idea is that promising to go make repairs on a solar system and promising uh, to guarantee its performance 
are things that make the product and the service fall under uh, the category of home warranty contract or service contract. And those are heavily regulated in California by the Department of Insurance, in New York by the Department of Financial Services, dot, dot, dot. Every single state has regulations. And the process um, and criteria for a company to to get approval, uh, to get registered and licensed to offer products like this can be very long and complicated and expensive. Uh, For California, it took us two years. Other states, it may take anywhere from three to six months to a year as well. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit before, and I'll just uh, punctuate it here. We had friends of yours and mine, uh, the guys from Energetic Insurance uh, as sponsors, and we've had Jeff on the show looking at similar products that create a barrier to entry, but also empower and enable the market to move forward with financial products. Uh, I really believe that companies like Omnidian, who are the new killer app in delivering this sort of retail power to homeowners, uh, because you are doing the hard work of unlocking something that makes this accessory similar to other accessories that we buy and commonly view as sort of warranted, right? You think about your air conditioner, you think about when you buy a home and you've got a home warranty and everything's covered for a year. I mean, this is really a revolutionary idea. I was completely clueless clueless as to how hard it is. And you pointed out something else that also makes it very difficult and gives you guys some runway, which is that it's a state by state thing. This is a mandate that you can go and like get approved by by FERC or uh, WAPA, and all of a sudden you can offer in a region. No, it's every single state. So you recently announced that you crossed this hurdle in California. Can you explain what that means for California homeowners and then also what you see as like the, the horizon for Omnidian? Yeah, what it means is that we can offer this product in California. So California homeowners can now uh, purchase our product and it, it, we are licensed and registered with the Department of Insurance. Mm-hmm which is actually a good thing. Uh, We went through uh, a lot of pain and tears for two years to get there. But ultimately, the reason why this protection and these regulations exist is to protect consumers, to make sure that providers that offer these services are going to be around, that the terms are fair, and that uh, ultimately they do offer consumer protection. Because when you start promising things, it can backlash if you're not going to deliver on your promise. Yeah. And where are you guys headed next? What's, uh, what are the next blocks to fall for you in terms of states with approvals? And I ask because there are going to be installers here in New Jersey or Texas who are going to say, well, when can I get this for my clients? Well, we just got licensed in Texas and we got, uh, I got an email today from New York regulators that say that we've cleared all the hurdles, but now with everything that's going on uh, in New York, they're a bit busy for the next few weeks before we get the actual license stamp. Um, but by the time this, uh, this podcast airs, we'll, uh, we'll be live in, in the state of New York. Currently, we have 20, 21 states and we continue to add them. So uh, the, the, the map is available on our website. And mm-hmm. if installers across the country want to know when we're going to be in their state, contact us. Well, as we've alluded to a few times before, you guys have a deep well of experience. I'd like to tap into that for a moment for those who are listening because they really are genuinely thinking about how to advance their own career, personal and professional uh, goals and life. Would you, and feel free either of you to take a stab at this, but would you help me understand what are some key lessons and takeaways from some of the more important mentors in your life or career? And how do you translate that to others on your team? I have one that's actually a negative example. Okay. 
someone once told me, you can do anything for a year or two if the money's good enough. And that did not feel right to me. And what I've experienced is that there is no amount of money that can replace working with people that are good human beings, the kind of people that you would go out and have lunch with and have a drink with day in and day out, be working in a positive environment and having these great relationships. That is really well said. I appreciate it. I that. agree with him 100,000%. One of the founding uh, CEOs of um, Washington Mutual Bank in Seattle, a guy whose name is uh, Lou Pepper, um, I uh, had the honor to help produce a book that he wrote about how to create a great culture. And one of the things that he always said was, Brad, you will never be remembered for the work you've done, but for how you treated the people you met along the way. And in my entire career, I have found that to be true. People in my life keep coming back again and again, but there are people that um, I respected and I trusted, never people because I admired some project that they turned out. You know, I think it's uh, tough in a startup particularly. You have to remember people are your number one cost center and therefore your greatest possible asset. We really believe culture is everything, what Cedric is saying. We really believe that the only thing we're really selling is trust. Mm -hmm. And we believe that to be clear and aligned externally, you have to be clear and aligned internally. So if you treat everybody around you with dignity and respect, if you trust them and admire them and they're people you like working with, that culture will reflect at every touch point in everything you do. And it will create a powerful, incredible uh, differentiation in the marketplace. At the same time, we're working with a lot of people like Cedric and myself who have had a lot of experience. We've been in business for a long time. And now we're at a point in life where we really want to be day in and day out around people that we trust and respect. It makes a big difference in your life. I'd love if you could talk a bit about that guiding principle for Opus Bank. Yeah, Opus Bank was introduced as after I left uh, SunPower. I got a call to go back into banking. This guy I knew in Southern California, California had raised a boatload of capital, four or five hundred million dollars, four hundred sixty million, and was going to start at the end of the financial crisis a brand new commercial bank in Southern California. And when you think about it, at twenty ten, the last thing people needed or wanted was another bank. Yeah, but but there was a big need there in uh, the market because what happened is at the end of the financial crisis, credit had seized and. In order to get the economy going again, we knew we had to get small business going again, but small business was having the greatest difficulty of all uh, moving forward. And so we founded this bank on the concept that we wanted to bring capital to great ideas. Mm. And we realized there were loads and loads of great ideas out there on the market. So what do I see happening in Word Room? Remember, the transactions would have been three or four or five or $10 million because they were commercial transactions. And I walk into the boardroom and there's a, a, a prospective client sitting there. And on the other side of the table, there's a banker. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And the uh, prospective client is saying, I need money. And we say, that's okay, we're a bank, we got a vault, we have lots of money. And then the prospective client said, well, what's the rate? So you saw, see it again, right? There it goes. The conversation is going to devolve into price. And I remember saying to the CEO, who could be our client, mm -hmm. why do you do what you do? What, what is it? Why do you want the capital? And the, what was interesting is the story that emerged then 
well, this is interesting. I'm at a point where I'm getting ready to retire. And what I want is I want the capability to like leave this viable business to my children. And we said, okay, well, that raises the question. Do you know how to value the business that, you know, you're about to acquire? Do you know how to value your own business? Do you know how to merge the balance sheets? It created this world of opportunity for a genuine partnership to help them grow. Because what we realized is if you focus on people first, money second, you win every time. Mm -hmm. Because what you're doing is you're putting the client at the center of the table and you're bringing all your team and expertise and you're surrounding the client. Mm -hmm. And that is a winning combination. I don't care what industry you're in. It's a hard one to learn. It's like ice skating, you know, what they say about the backflip. It's like easy to do, hard to learn. <laughs> and it, it, it's true about this in business, the whole concept of, you know, people first, money second. Yeah. You know, it's easy to do, but it's hard to learn. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to really create that culture inside your organization. Cedric and I talk all the time about the fact we believe that we're in an inflection point as an industry, and we believe there's this invisible change there right now. It's this movement of the market from early adopters who are willing to take risk to the mass market that's risk averse. And so what happens is if you're sitting there and you're sitting across from a prospect today, we realize what got you here won't get you there. Mm. Can't keep approaching the market in the same way and hope to get the same results. And that's why we're so excited about what we've built and what we're taking to market. And this whole idea is that if we put people first and if we put their fears first and we can solve their fears, money and everything else will follow. There's a lot of folks that are feeling that fear right now. Uh, a lot of folks for our benefit, I think you're going to tap into this idea of passion that the three of us have uh, enjoyed within this industry for a long time. And they're going to think, uh, wow, the industry's going to, you know, doing a downturn. It's not a bull market anymore. I don't want to chase dollars anymore. I want to chase value and benefit to the world. I want to leave something my kids are proud of. And they're thinking of transitioning into our industry and in clean tech or clean energy storage. Uh, electric vehicles, what piece or maybe two pieces of advice might you guys offer to someone who's thinking of how to, or considering how to transition into, into our industry? I have a strong point of view about this. And that is this, whatever you're thinking about trans transitioning into, don't just look at the business model, look at the people. It's people you're going to be working with every day. And likewise, if you're inside a company and you're hiring, don't just look at the resume or the qualifications. Look at how that person and what that person is going to bring to the table and the um, amount of trust that they'll engender inside the organization so the organization can be even more successful. Mm. And so if you want, I'll tell you the, the, the grandest story of all time about how to hire to a brand. Sure. But but we really, we really believe in it. We really believe we're very, very cautious about the people that we hire and bring into the team because we want to get up every day and be happy and have that, uh, how we feel working every day, translating out at every touch point to all of our customers, right? But at the same time, if you're considering a business transition, and these are the big career mistakes I've made, going in and looking at the business model and ignoring the people. It's what Cedric said earlier. It's like, for the right amount of money, can you do a job for a year or two years or whatever? It may not do damage to you just for those one or two years. It could do damage to you for your lifetime. So be really, really cautious about the cultures and the people that you're working with. Keep your eyes and your ears open. 
go with good people, good people will create great things. Yeah, you know, when I was in retail, there was this effort to really hire incredibly expensive and talented companies to come in and teach people how to improve customer service. And these programs would go on and pretty soon, you know, at the end of the program, you'd realize, well, if I looked at my entire organization, I had maybe a third of them who were terrible at service and a third who were mediocre and a third who were great. And we'd get to the end of the process and write the check to the consultants and would still have the organization segmented into a third, a third, a third. (laughs) Because we're trying to train people to be good at customer empathy and customer service that you know how they do uh, hiring fairs at big stores and they'll put up mm-hmm. big tents and they'll do hot dogs and everyone will come from all over the place and apply. And I was at one of these hiring fairs and it was a big box department store. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the parking lot with hot dogs and applications in their hands. And the store manager came out and took the microphone just about eight forty-five in the morning and tapped the microphone and said, Um, I have an announcement to make. I know you have your applications in your hand and I hope you'll hold on to them for a moment. We just have one ask of you. We're going to open the doors to the store at 9 a.m. and we'd like to position three or four of you at a time at each door. And the only thing we want to ask of you is that you just say good morning to all of our customers as they walk in the door in the morning. I swear to you, I looked up and 50% of the people in the parking lot were headed for their cars. They got in their cars and they drove away. Wow. And, the, and the store manager looked at me and said, mission accomplished. If you're going to hire to the brand, you've got to hire to the brand. You can't train to the brand. Wow. So if you know what the culture is and what you want, hire to that culture and it'll work every time. But don't hope you can bring people in who don't share that value and that you can train that value in. It's almost impossible to do. As we turn towards home base here, I presume that you both are avid readers. I wonder if there is a book or two that perhaps have made a big impact on you and perhaps even subsequently you gift to others and you'd be, share, you'd be able to share with us. I have two. Cedric will have to help me with one because the author's French, actually. <laughs> and um, his name is Patrick Winvois at R-E-N-V-O-I-S-E. I'm sure I've hatcheted it. And um, he wrote a book called Neuromarketing. And I uh, give it to everyone who will have it, who's in the industry, because basically the premise is that 95% of all decision-making is subconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, people don't do the rational thing of creating the little T and the pros and the cons and think rationally about their purchase decision. They want something that speaks to them emotionally and eliminates pain, even if they don't know they experience that pain. So I love that book uh, professionally. The book that I think has been most helpful to me in my life is one called The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. So and the, the shocking thing is, you know, he wrote that book in 1967. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's got such incredible advice in there. You know, I remember the story he, he told about Jack Welch and mm-hmm. he would go into a meeting with uh, making a list of what he thought were the primary concerns he needed to attack. And then he would uh, go into the meeting and he would not share his list, but he would talk to his team and he would ask his team what needed to be done for the company. And if what they said wasn't on his list, he would put his own ideas on hold until the team established customer focused goals were accomplished. And I thought that was great because, you know, the lesson that I learned from that and from a lot of other people is that the greatest power in business is restraint. When you think you have a lot of experience or you think you know where to, what ought to be done, 
ask the opinions of the people around you and then listen to them respectfully because they'll always guide you out of the woods. Cedric has come into the woods with a flashlight and retrieved me multiple occasions. And it's one of the reasons that we work so well together. <laughs> oh man, that's a great analogy. I love it. And uh, we are big fans here at Suncast of the Effective Executive. In fact, about a year ago, we did a book study uh, for those that are in our, our private guild and uh, read through that book and shared our thoughts on it. And I was floored that I'd never read this book, read this book. It really should be core reading for any business program, probably just for any business person. I'm going to check out neuromarketing, but I want to just say for those who haven't read Exec- Effective Executive, I would highly recommend you get the 50th anniversary version that Jim Collins did the forward for because the forward by Jim Collins itself is a work of art. <laughs> it's amazing. 100%. Yeah. Cedric? Yeah, I referred to a book earlier called Play Bigger. It did have a big impact on me. And it's interesting because when I was joining the company, uh, there were two books that that our CEO, Mark Lifman, recommended that I read. One of them, uh, Play Bigger, which was fascinating to me because I read it. I loved it. And it really, like I said before, explains how you you find your own path and you, you become the leader. You become the category leader of a new category that you create for yourself. I realized that's what I had done with Soli Chamba when I became, became this mar- consultant and market research analyst on O&M and monitoring. So I recognized myself in it and it helped me see the framework of how you can potentially do that with other businesses. Yeah. Is this the one that's uh, how pirate streamers and innovators create and dominate? Yes. That's okay. Cool. Uh, so it's a great read. Uh, another one that, that um, Mark Lifman recommended was business model generation, which I thought was great because it put a framework around um, creating a new business model, framing it, assessing it and refining it. And so for anybody who's um, creating something new, whether it's a new company or a new product, I think it's a, it's a super useful book. And I have another book that's not a business book that's on Go my nightstand right now. I, I love uh, it. You know, you are a listener. You know the nightstand question. <laughs> yes, yes. What's on my nightstand right now has nothing to do with business. And at the same time, it has everything to do with business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Fitness After 40. Oh, wow. Well, you'll, be re- you'll, you'll have to put that into practice in a few years. I've, I've been putting it in practice. I have to say I'm already past that mark. <laughs> and, um, and the reason why I think it's, I mentioned it and I think it's so important is that we all live busy lives. Um, we have families, we have, we have work and approaching all this from the philosophy of being fit and being an athlete has helped me a lot in my life and in my career. Is there a habit or consistent practice that for you has given great impact or leverage in your life and work? For me, it's, um, Asking myself one question consistently, no matter whether it's a big issue or a small issue, mm-hmm. is will it matter in six months? Mm. And uh, this edit has helped me incredibly because if something won't matter in six months, you know, I was talking about earlier this thing about, you know, true power is restraint mm. and just remembering uh, in business and in your personal life that what you say matters. Yeah. And that you don't have to respond to anyone about anything, anytime. You can thank everyone for everything all the time. (laughs) The most important thing you can do is show people you care and tell truth with compassion. And if you do, the loyalty will be overwhelming. Well, way to begin that practice I found that's effective for me is when an issue appears to me, particularly when I feel my heart beating a little faster for whatever reason, I just pause and ask myself, well, this, well, will this, 
matter in six months. And if it won't, I just let it pass. Wow. That is really cool. For me, the habit is something that I learned from a wise man called Brad Davis. One of his, uh, one of his favorite sayings, and you'll hear him say that all the time, is, I hear you. Mm. And it's fundamental. And it's, it's in our company culture. And, and I've made that a habit for myself, is when you're in conversations with others, business or life, it's easy to want to talk about yourself or want to put your, your word or your opinion out there. Uh, it takes practice to actually hear what others are trying to say and to, uh, to acknowledge that truly, not just pretending to acknowledge, but to acknowledge that. And if you put that in practice, then your entire relationship with others uh, changes. And I think it, it drives a different quality of relationship and, and work as well. Well, gents, all good things must come to an end, and so it is with this conversation. I'd love to give a bridge in the conversation for those who may want to extend their gratitude or may want to reach out and see how they can partner with you guys. What would be the best way for them to find out more and to establish contact with you? Maybe it's LinkedIn or Twitter. Maybe it's just your website, but we want to give you a chance to just let people know how they can find you. I think one of the things, Nico, would be to visit us at omnidian.com, O-M-N-I-D-I-A-N. The thing that we've tried to build into our website experience is easy access to the team at Omnidian. So whether you're a solar contractor or installer, there's information there for you. If you have a commercial business, there's information there for you. If you're a homeowner, and you would like to know how to find solar without fear, our products, our services, uh, us, speak with us in person. There are contact forms there. Our team, we call the people who are customer facing team love uh, because they spread a lot of love out in the market and they relieve a lot of anxiety and fear. And they're super helpful. They're just great people. So they're accessible as well uh, online. So that's what I'd recommend. Of course, anyone who wants to speak uh, with any member of our team or with Cedric or myself, uh, can simply indicate that and, uh, and we'll uh, return the phone call. So I, I think that would just be a great source of information for people. And we also have our job postings listed there. And we have a lot of information that we're really proud about, our culture. Um, we've been named one of the top 100 companies to work for in Washington State for two consecutive years. Wow. As you know, that honor comes from our team uh, who nominates us uh, for that recognition. Uh, so uh, we've uh, included information on the website about our culture and the team who work there. We have photographs of our, our executives and our leaders and their bios. And so it's easy to learn about us. And, um, and we really appreciate it when people do visit us there. Fantastic. Well, we're going to wrap today the way we always do with what I call a bold prediction. I invite either a tag team or either of you to take the lead on this, but I'd love to see from the vantage point of two quasi-oracles in our industry, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I'll be controversial here. Go for it. I don't think 20-year warranties are something that we're going to see forever because it makes no sense. Uh, what else is, has a warranty for 20 years? Uh, and I say that knowing that what, what a medium provides is peace of mind and solar without fear. I just don't think 20 years makes sense. We're setting the wrong expectation here. Most solar systems uh, pay for themselves in five to seven years. I think 10 years would make a lot more sense. Mm, so a reversion to the mean. We'll, we'll, we, we, I think we saw the 20, 25, 30-year warranties on solar modules in particular 
create that standard. And, uh, and it was necessary to give Wall Street a sense of confidence that these products had some financial backing. Uh, I love that, Cedric, that now uh, we're going to see this reversion to a more sensible warranty period that matches with a product payoff period. Uh, that is that's really remarkable. You've been enjoying, as have I, a deep dive into the very essence of uh, customer satisfaction, uh, reducing customer fear and reducing friction in the buying process with uh, my friend Cedric Brejo, VP of product, and my new friend Brad Davis, the CMO and co-founder, both at Omnidian. It's been a genuine pleasure to have you guys on board for this ride, and I look forward to our future conversations. Thank you, Nico. This was great fun. Thank you. Thanks, Nico. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode, and I'm as grateful as you are that I had the chance to sit at the feet of these two titans and soak up some hard-won lessons. What were your favorite anecdotes, quotes, and quips from Cedric and Brad today? Would you share them on LinkedIn? I'd love to hear them, and I'm sure that so many others would as well if you wouldn't mind sharing this episode. And if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion along with the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And definitely do come back on Tuesday to catch another Tactical Tuesday, where we go deep with subject matter experts like this week's Erica Myers, SEPA's expert on all things electric vehicle integration. We do this to help you separate fact from fiction and add knowledge to your noggin. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.